All right, we're going to finish Jude today. I want to just encourage you, next week is Pentecost Sunday. Um, We're going to pause to kind of celebrate Pentecost. I'm I'm anticipating um, some things. And so it's also the day we're going to launch Bluffton. Um, And so I just want to encourage you to lean in, be praying that we're going to maybe do some fasting this week and just kind of pressing in and believing the Lord for a fresh outpouring of his spirit that empowers us to preach the gospel. And let's pray over the word. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for your presence today. We're thankful for the gift of your word, for the power of your spirit. We ask in Jesus' name, Lord, that as we study, you would be with us, that you would challenge our hearts, inspire, encourage us. And Lord, we want to be a people that truly carry your gospel and your kingdom to this region. So would you use us today, Lord? Make us better disciples of King Jesus today. It's in your name we pray. And somebody say amen. Well, this week I thought about a story from Luther's life. We've talked so much about Luther um, in the past. But you remember that um, Luther, before the 95 Thesis scenario, was a monk. And we've said before that he was very... um, guilt-stricken. I don't know how else to say it. Some some historians even say that Luther might have been, uh, had mental health issues, but Luther would like wear out the priest with confession. He'd just keep him for hours confessing all of his sin. He was always uh, guilt-stricken. And he also took things like communion very seriously. He was very, uh, just very conscious. Well, there was a point in Luther's life when he was, again, pre-95 thesis, he's still a monk, um, where he travels to Rome. And going to Rome was really a, it was a pilgrimage for him. It was a big deal. He was excited. He was thrilled to be going to Rome. And he, um, when he got there, he was a little unimpressed. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, any city that has um, the idea of pilgrimage um, around it. There's just, there's, there's always uh, people, it feels like the Myrtle Beach of, of religious <laughs> pilgrimage. I don't know how else to say it. There's just people making money off of the fact that people travel there for uh, a pilgrimage. And so Jerusalem's the same way. It's like every corner you turn, there's some holy relic or site that you can visit. And so anyway, Luther was just disenchanted with the, and this was the dream of his life, really, to visit Rome, disenchanted with the tourism and the, he, he for instance, when he went to um, Mass, he said it sounded like they were auctioneers. They were just going through it so quickly, just trying to run people in and out. And uh, actually, he got a chance to serve Mass, and they were telling him, hurry up, hurry up. Um, and so the other priests were, um, he questioned their salvation, some of them. It was just, it was A lot of it was about money, he felt. So he left Rome very disenchanted. But when he left Rome, feeling discouraged, he decided that he was going to visit a living saint. And now he was really hoping that this saint would re-inspire and re-encourage his faith. The living saint's name was Anna uh, Laminate, is how you would say her name. Uh, I think that's right. Um, But anyway, Anna was, in her teen years, she was actually outed in her city for what seems like some kind of sexual morality. In the city she was living in, church and government were kind of one thing, and so she was outed for living promiscuous, essentially. And then she landed living in kind of a Christian, I don't know how to, it was like a Christian home for people who were homeless. So Anna, after this kind of, 
she was outed for sexual sin, essentially, and she landed in this Christian home for people who were homeless. And the story goes that in this season, she had multiple angelic visions. She um, had these great revelations, and she decided in this season that she was going to fast or they called it a hunger strike sometimes. So she, she's going to fast, and she's only going to eat or receive the Lord's Supper. Other than that, she's not going to have any food or any water. And so the story of her sainthood goes that she, for years, lived only off communion bread and wine and never had food. And the story went... Um, if you understand, and actually, I actually want to take some time to jump into this in the next couple months, but I won't do it today, or you guys will hate me for how long I want to talk right now. Um, when you understand the Catholic view of transubstantiation that was really being articulated in this season in particular, transubstantiation, that word means to change substance. And so there was the view that as the priests prayed and blessed the elements of communion that they, not not outwardly, but that inwardly somehow they actually change substance into the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so when, now think her context, she's only eating uh, communion bread and drinking communion wine. And the church begins to think that she's only consuming the literal body and blood of Jesus. And so they begin to talk of her as a kind of half angel because she's ascended to this place of um only feasting on the Lord, essentially, and that she's not even fully human anymore. She's kind of half angel. And this gets weird, but you guys know church history stuff just gets weird, so here you go. And so where that went was that she never um, used the bathroom uh, either. Well, I live in a house full of kids, so you know how that goes. One or two, she never did either. She, um, she, she never used the bathroom again. And so now Luther, disenchanted with Rome, decides he's going to visit this living saint, and he's really hoping to be inspired and he sits down with, with Anna, and they begin to talk. And nothing particularly weird happens, but Luther asks the question, um, how, he essentially asks the question, how excited are you about heaven? Like, how much of your life are you longing to be in the presence of the Lord, longing to be in heaven? And she responded, oh, no, I'm really actually, uh, like, I know how things happen on earth. I kind of know my place. I'm, I'm, I'm not really looking forward to heaven. I don't know what to expect there. And that was her response. And nothing else was really weird, but Luther went home going, she's not legit at all. Like, she actually doesn't, she, she's a crook. Um, and he, he didn't make a public statement about it. He just kind of said, she's, that's not right. And um, what happens now is that uh, emperors go to visit Anna. She's really becoming, like, people are coming to her for advice. They're giving her gifts. She's given a house. Um, and people are really coming to, to ask of this, this holy saint. Now, the emperor's sister was the Duchess of Bavaria. She was a little more discerning. She actually really loved the Lord and was discerning. And she invited Anna to a retreat at a monastery. And what she did was, I like it. I like her style. She put Anna in a room with a hole in the door so she could see through. And in the room, they had snacks. And Anna got to the room unpacked her stuff, pigged out. I mean, just pigged out, used the bathroom in a bucket, dumped it out the window, and the emperor's sister said, I got you. Um, and, it, and it comes out that she actually was essentially a crook, totally a crook, and they made her repent, but then she kind of replayed the card later. All that to say, at the latter half of her life, she tried a whole nother crookery scam to make her money. And, and, and 
Luther called it from the start in that she actually had no real longing to see Jesus and to be caught up in the glorious presence of God in heaven. Luther said, this isn't right. Now, when we turn to Jude, we're looking again at what Thomas Schreiner dubs intruders. And what we're finding are these people who are saying that they've transcended into a new height, kind of like Anna. They've transcended into a new height of spirituality. And you remember verse 4 of Jude told us that they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality. That this church that Jude's writing to, they have intruders who are teaching because of the grace of God, you can now live however you want to live. It's God's grace is a license to sin. And so they're claiming a higher level of spirituality while practicing open sexual immorality on the basis of their spiritual revelations. Verse 8 told us that these intruders rely on their dreams, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Remember we said we believe God can speak to us through our dreams, but what we don't teach from our dreams. Our dreams are not a place for doctrine. Rather, we test them according to the word of God. But these people are teaching on the basis of their dreams. They're defiling the flesh, meaning they're acting out open immorality. They reject authority, the authority of the church and the authority of the scripture. And do you remember this part? They blaspheme the glorious ones. They're somehow in their elevated state, um, commanding angels, disrespecting angels and demonic powers. They're essentially acting like they have secret spiritual knowledge and participating somehow in the spiritual realm beyond what the scripture asks of us. And now much of the letter so far as we've studied has been a study of the rebuke against these intruders. Um, And so remember we heard uh, Jude say that these people, they pursue the way of Balaam, they're after the way of Cain, uh, they're a part of Korah's rebellion. Remember, we went through all of their, their waterless clouds, they are trees that bear no fruit. And so, so far in the letter, Jude's been telling the church, look, these intruders are wicked and are going to be judged, and they're actually shepherds who don't feed the sheep, and so you should be aware of these wicked intruders, teachers. But remember that from the start, the letter was really to the church. It wasn't to the intruders. And so now as he goes to conclude the letter, he's going to begin to bring instruction again to the saints, to the holy ones of God. Do you remember in verse 3, he tells them to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Remember in the introduction, he calls them beloved, kept by the Lord, those Jesus pours his grace out on us. So now as we we turn to the conclusion of the text, we're going to receive a little instruction for the church. All right, let's read. We'll start in verse uh, 14 and read through 23. It was also about these, these would be the intruders, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. Did you catch the trinity of ungodlies there? To execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness And they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They're loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you, so here he says, 
Um, it's about these that Enoch prophesied, these intruders, and then he turns to, but you remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's interesting here that as we look at the conclusion of Jude, he really starts to think about the end, about eschatology. And so the first thing he does is he quotes a prophecy from the book of Enoch that's said to come from Enoch, where Enoch prophesied that the Lord would come with tens of thousands of his holy ones to judge the wicked. Now, we've talked already in this series a hundred times about the fact that the book of Enoch is from the intertestamental period. The church studied it, read it. They didn't believe it to be Bible or canon. And so Augustine, for instance, said in the fourth century that there were portions of Enoch that he believed to be true and to be accurate, but he did not believe um, the book of Enoch to be fully inspired cover to cover. And so in this sense, Jude is quoting a prophecy that the rest of the Bible supports The prophecy is actually really simple, that in the end, God will come, the Lord will come with thousands of angels to judge the wicked. And in that sense, this prophecy is true. The prophecy is straightforward, and and Jude takes the prophecy of Enoch and applies it to Jesus, that at at the Perusa, or at the second coming, Jesus will come to judge the wicked, to expel the unrighteous from the earth. Now, Jude points to this prophecy with twofold purpose. First, it's to show us that Jesus, again, is the merciful king of the universe, but he also will be the final judge of the wicked. And so the first thing Jude wants us to remember is that Jesus judges unrighteousness. He is merciful to all who come to him with repentant hearts and ask for grace. God will always be merciful. But to the rebellious and the wicked, he will be the righteous judge. Second, this is really where the text camps here when you meditate on it for a bit. Second, Jude is showing us that we should have even evangelistic zeal as we think of the second coming. Okay, and so he's saying, the time is short. God is at the door. The Lord is coming to judge these wicked men. And then did you recognize he's going to turn at the end and say, snatch all you can from the fire. So there is this sense in which Jude is calling us to live lives expectant of the second coming, to live on our toes, looking for the return of the Lord, and to recognize that the time of the harvest is short. The harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, the time, the harvest is a season, right? The season ends. So he's saying, recognize that this harvest season will come to a close, live on your toes, reaching for all those who are caught up in this deception. So when he, when he turns and he says, um, to you, beloved, he says, remember the predictions of the apostles that the last days would be marked by scoffers devoid of the Spirit. I actually probably didn't spend enough time in this series, but even in this setting, you can't be exhaustive, explaining the connection between Jude and the second epistle of Peter. There's a, a, a connection there, an intimacy between these two letters. But Second Peter, verse 3 Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3 says this, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, 
following their own sinful desires. In the last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. Imagine that. Um, following, it's like, like sinners will come with sinning. Um, following their own sinful desires. The apostles said in the last days there would be scoffers. Peter says in the last days scoffers will be scoffing, saying, where is the coming? What Peter is saying is that the last days, the season of the outpouring. Now, if we're gonna, if we're gonna think about the end, the end, and at least Peter's understanding of the end. Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood up quoting Joel and said, the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on sons and daughters. So Peter has defined the last days as the, uh, from Pentecost, um, and to the return of Christ. So here Peter says, in the season of the last days, in the season of the harvest, there will be scoffers scoffing, saying, where is the return of the Lord? And living out their own sinful desires. What does that mean? It means that there will be people, unrighteous people saying, Jesus said he was coming back. Where is he now? You said he was coming quickly, but hundreds of years have gone by. You said he would come like a thief in the night, but here we are. Things keep going on like they've always gone on. There are scoffers scoffing, and then they live out their own ungodliness. Jude warns the church, the faithful, to remember that the apostles told us that the last days would be a season in which scoffers scoff and teach people to live unrighteous. We who live in the last days need to anticipate that there will always be in this season scoffers, mockers, people who are leading others to live in perversion. Now, the, the, the point of the text here is that we need to learn to persevere in a season of scoffing. You need to remember that in our day, culture will wag its head, spit, mock. Culture will belittle. Your faith will be questioned. You'll be cast out for the sake of your faith. You need to remember that that's coming. And the scriptural command here is you better learn to persevere through it. You persevere through it with remembrance that the apostles prophesied that this would come. I think that we would do well to remember in this conversation the concept of the wheat and tares. You guys remember the parable of the wheat and tares? That the farmer sows wheat and then in the morning they realize that an enemy has come and sown tares in the field. And the servants of the farmer say, uh, of the master say, we'll go pull all the tares up. And he says, don't pull the tares up. You'll unsettle the wheat. Wait till they all come to fruition. And then we'll, at the end of the harvest, then we'll separate them. Um, And the idea there, we miss some, is this, that... Um, number one, the wheat comes to fruition as the tares come to fruition. And so darkness is manifestly growing as the kingdom of righteousness and holiness is manifestly growing. And so as we approach the end, there will continually be scoffers and evil. And many times as believers, we get so caught up and thinking of the end times as like a woe is me The end is only consumed with um, evil and wickedness. And we start to live just afraid of hell. And we're afraid of Satan. And we're just saying, God, snatch us out of here quick before Satan really has his way. And we forget that the prophecy is that the church will grow, that the light of God will, will, will shine on the nations. The prophecy was that the nations would stream to Jerusalem to worship Messiah. The, the prophecy is that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the, as the water covers the sea. The 
Psalm 110's prophecy is that Jesus would sit on the throne in heaven until all of his enemies are made a footstool. And so there's this side of the end times prophetic word, which is the church grows. And so the tares come to fruition and the wheat grow to fruition. And the idea here, which we don't get because we don't grow wheat, is that when wheat comes to full fruition, it bows from the weight of the fruit. It actually bends. But tares, because they produce no fruit, they stand straight up. And so you're able to easily pull the tares out from the wheat based on which ones are bent over. And as the church bears fruit um, and bows to the Lord, and at the end will be preserved, brought in as the harvest as the, the, as the, as the tares are thrown out, the wheat are brought in, the tares are burned. And so we get this idea that in the last season, there are going to be scoffers, there will be tares, but as the church, we continue to bow and we continue to produce good fruit. From there, Jude says, so remember that the apostles prophesied to you that in the last days there were going to be scoffers. You're going to need to persevere through their scoffing. You're going to need to love Christ, um, embellish, like, like embody the kingdom in a season where people are mocking you. And then he says, now this is how you're going to persevere through that season of mocking. First, you're going to build yourselves up in your most holy faith. So again, we've returned to this concept of contending for the faith in the sense that these intruders, these false teachers are teaching new doctrine. They're teaching new ideas and new spirituality. And Jude says, don't get caught up in that. What you actually need to do is persevere through the season of scoffing by building yourself up in your most holy faith, in the historic doctrines of Christ. Build yourself up in the faith of the Lord. And, and that concept of building yourself up really has to do with discipleship. It has to do with reading your word, studying the, the, the historic doctrines of scripture. You need to be able to articulate things like justification by faith. You need to be able to articulate the Trinity and what we believe um, about the Lordship of Christ. He's saying in a season of scoffing and in a season of intruding and perverse doctrine and theology, you saints, you holy loved ones, make sure you are disciples being discipled, loving the doctrines of scripture, put your face in the word, live there and extract from that the historic faith so that you can defend it you need to love the word love doctrine build yourself up what does that mean take the time exert the energy and the effort to make sure you are building something in your life you are you are a disciple who's growing being built and that that challenges us to question are we being are we really being built in this season do you have a systematic daily building or do you read your Bible, you know, once in a blue moon when you see it on the coffee table? Or is there a systematic daily, I am growing in my faith? That's the way that we persevere is we're going to grow in our faith. He says, so build yourself up in your most holy faith through study, through devoting ourselves to the scripture, through learning the, the principles, ideas, and doctrines of the word. And then he says, also by Praying in the Spirit. So you need to be people who are doctrinally sound, and you need to be people who live and pray in the Spirit. Now, uh, we are charismatics. I believe in tongues. Pray in tongues every day. Um, Paul says, I speak in tongues more than any of you. And then he says, but I rarely ever give a prophetic word in tongues to the church. And what we learn is that Paul's talking 
praying in tongues a lot, but he's not someone who uses the gift of tongues often in the setting of the saints. Paul said, I pray in my spirit, uh, and then I pray in my mind. In other words, I pray in my natural mind, and then I pray in my spirit or pray in tongues. That's a plain teaching of Scripture. Anyone who tells you that tongues is no longer a thing or that the Bible um, says tongues stopped, or many don't even understand that, that Paul plainly teaches tongues as a prayer language. Um, if anyone's teaching you that, they need to majorly slow down and read Corinthians, uh, and no scholars come away from an honest understanding of the text going tongues was not a thing. That's silly. Um, and so, so when Paul says pray in the spirit, does he mean exclusively pray in tongues? I don't think so. I think some of you would say, you know, I don't pray in tongues. I want to pray in tongues. I don't yet. It's all cool. I'm pursuing that. That am I exempt from this command? No, I think praying in the spirit is not exclusive to tongues. It can include tongues, but it means essentially to have a prayer life. That's not just mumbling phrases. It's not just coughing up words, but you need to have a prayer life where you're alone with God in the Spirit. And you're listening to the Spirit. You're nudged by the Spirit. You are praying prayers that the Spirit leads you to pray. If you're someone who says, look, I don't pray in tongues, but maybe one day, you still should be asking the Lord, give me burdens of prayer. We all should feel in seasons the Lord burdening us to pray for a relative or burdening us to pray for our school system. Your, your prayer life is not to be just a mumbling of phrases. It's to be spirit-filled, spirit-led, and spirit-empowered. At times, that includes praying in tongues. At other times, that includes just putting your face in the carpet and saying, Oh, God, lead me in prayer this morning. And you, someone pops to mind, right? Like you feel the Spirit brought up a, a relative. And you just lay there and pray. Holy Spirit, would you touch this person? Would you convict them of sin? Would you fill them with the Spirit? Would you draw them to yourself? You're asking the Holy Spirit to commune with us in the place of prayer. Now, you just told us two things. In the last days, you're going to be persecuted and scoffed at. And you're going to have to persevere by, one, building yourself up in biblical doctrine in the faith. And, two, you need to persevere as you are people of prayer who live in the Spirit. Too many times we have prayer lives that are just mimicking or parroting phrases. And, and I always say that, that one of the greatest dangers for the church is to pray just long enough to feel better about yourself. And so many times prayer is actually about asking for communion with the Spirit, trying to hear the voice of the Lord, laying on the ground and saying, God, lead me. It's not, let me mumble these phrases so I can check it off my list and move on with my day. So he says, build yourself up in doctrine, pray in the spirit while people are scoffing and persecuting you and wait for the mercy of the Lord to be revealed. So build ourselves up in doctrine, pray in the spirit as we anticipate the second coming of Christ. We're to live with an anticipation for the second coming. And finally, he says this, and snatch the fallen from the fire while hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now, here we find major wisdom. And again, think context. Judas talking about a church who has false teaching. People are living in open sin because the false teaching says they can. And Jude's saying, you need to be people who snatch others from the fire while hating even the garment stained by flesh. We, 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 we need to hear this, especially in this day. We need to hear this because culturally... Um, things are becoming very divisive and toxic. What we need to remember is that as saints, we are people who snatch others from the fire. 
that means that we're on, we're on a rescue mission, right? We're not people who write off those who disagree with us. And what's happening, and Pastor Shadrach and I were talking about this, you know, Shadrach's doing our youth ministry now, we're talking about this this week. Um, so many times in today, in the world of social media, you have, we need to understand that there are generational differences. We're a multi-generational church. We love all generations. But as someone who's younger, I will admit and say that particularly the boomers grew up in a day with a little more thick skin and toughness and work ethic. Young people learn it. Um, right? Th- that's just a thing. And, um, and that doesn't mean that millennials are wrong about everything. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that boomers are right about everything. Doesn't mean that. Yeah, I said it. Um, what, what's, but what's happening to an extent is in the church right now, we have this season of young people um, walking away from the Lord. They're, they're sliding into these really bad ideas. They're being led by what we would call like um, TikTok theologians, which I don't. I don't really know that much about TikTok, but I'm pretty sure you can't talk for like longer than a minute anyway. So you like how you do, th- do theology and sound bites. That's sketchy. Okay. Um, and, and many of them are sliding away or walking away from the Lord. And sometimes I'm going to correct you now. I told you that you were tougher and I'm going to correct you. Sometimes the older mature saints, rather than having a heart of, I'm going to snatch them from the fire. We write them off as the, the weak immature, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this in church, snowflakes. Are you allowed to say that word in church? Um, And we all, young, old alike, we need to be people who snatch others from the fire. The, the movement of, of young people that are, it's really, it's really actually led by um, politics. It's not led by their study of scripture. It's um, really, really, liberal politics slipping into and becoming a hermeneutic for how you should read scripture. We need to be people who are willing to snatch others from the fire, not writing off those who are going astray and, and then blasting them on the internet as immature and weak, which may be the case. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that that's how you approach an issue. Does that make sense? Sometimes you, you sometimes a person you're throwing stones at probably deserves to be pelted. Um, <laughs> That doesn't mean you should be doing it, um, or that you're that, that God in His grace has led us to that ministry. We're not we're not stone pelters. We're those who snatch others from fire. And so, but then that that goes to every generation. I know that there are many of us my age who maybe feel even more frustrated than older folks do with the move because we're the ones getting blasted all the time. Um, I sure get I sure get blasted. It's pretty cool. Um, I'll share those stories later. Um, we need to make sure that our hearts don't grow hard and that we're people who recognize error. We recognize that what people are sliding into is fire, right? Like um, Matt's a fireman. He's with us this morning. You don't go into a burning house and sit down, right? You don't go into a burning house and use the restroom. There's trees outside for that. Um, <laughs> that's, the, that's the imagery that Jude's using here. It snatched them out of the fire but recognize that what they're living in is fire. It is false teaching, and it's false teaching that promotes sensuality. And I want to say this for a moment. Um, 
every, every heretical movement, every false teaching that arises in the church, it usually in some way promotes sensuality. So it doesn't just say to you, hey, let me teach you this new thing about God that's actually heretical, but I'm going to give you new knowledge. The new knowledge always leads to a license to sin. So the temptation is not deny historic Christianity. It's deny historic Christianity and get the benefit of your flesh being satisfied. And so many times when we go to evangelize or to try to win over to the Lord people who are fallen astray, we need to be aware that what we're stepping into is fire. And it's not just going to throw stones at the historic idea of Jesus's divinity. It's going to throw stones at historic Christianity and entice your flesh and try to lead you into sexual sin. Um, and so in a very real way, Jude's saying, look, you've got intruders who are leading people astray. You need to snatch them out of that fire, but recognize that the fire's hot. You don't want to go over there and make friends with them. You don't want to go over there and live. See, do you catch the nuance now? We need to love people who are living in false teaching. We need to love those who are, who are pursuing error. Love them enough to try to snatch them, but we don't want to get in bed with them and compromise. Jude calls it fire. And then he's going to say, um, snatch them from fire while you hate even the garment stained by flesh. And, and that's a nuance that um, people are kind of throwing stones at the old adage, love the sinner, hate the sin. Um, but, I, but I just want you to know it is biblical. That is the concept. We're to love people, but we are not to celebrate sin. We're to despise it and to stay away from it and flee from it and run from it. And, and we want to be really careful, like in a culture that's promoting certain lifestyles and promoting certain um, sins on many, many fronts. We don't want to be the kind of people who are, who are pointing our fingers and, and saying, you're all going to hell in a handbasket. Um, we want to be the kind of people who are trying to win them to the Lord and preach the gospel. But at the same time, we don't want to have anything to do with the sin. And what happens sometimes is when people view themselves as needing to be compassionate about an issue like abortion is somewhere in the middle, they start to compromise, right? And when we talk about an issue like abortion, we do want to be compassionate for all who have um, gone through that. For women, that can be really tough. There's forgiveness and grace, but at the same time, we want to have a clear message. Abortion is evil, period. Um, and, And so... We have compassion for what you've gone through. We love you. There's grace for you. You are welcome in our community. Um, but we're not going to teach from the pulpit that it's, it's kind of okay just to make you feel better. Like, no, we, we actually believe in evil and we believe in repentance. We love anyone who's willing to repent. We, we welcome all. There's grace and mercy. But we don't compromise our convictions to make other people feel better about the sin that they're living in. That's hard. It's, it especially hits home when it's one of your kids. You get a kid who's living a lifestyle and then your doctrine's really challenged. But Jude's telling us that, that we need to snatch people from fire and hate even the garment stained by flesh. So love people, hate sin. That's a, that's a biblical adage. Um, and so for this church, again, Jude's not saying to the, to the leadership, hey, why don't you have a good old-fashioned church split? Just hate everybody who's fallen into error and leave. He's saying, no, you need to stand up and fight for the historic faith and you need to argue with and argue for those who are falling into error. Now, from here, I guess I, I wish I could like map out the logic of his argument for us. Um, but essentially what he's saying is, you got, you got people living in error. There are false teachers who are heretics, apostates. You need to rebuke them. Cut them off. But then you have a body of people who have fallen into error. 
What I want you to do is to build yourself up in the holy faith and pray in the spirit so that you can then snatch them from the fire. But you can't actually snatch people from the fire if you're not being built up yourself and you don't actually know the historic faith because they're falling into theological and ideological error that's leading to licentiousness and sin. And you need to know the truth to lead them to the truth. And so you actually need to be people who study your Bibles. That's essentially what he's saying is like study your word, pray in the spirit, and then you could stand on your feet and win people to the Lord. But if you're not people who are really building yourself up, praying in the spirit and, and anticipating the coming of the Lord, you're really not useful in snatching others from fire. Does that make sense? That's very much the argument he's trying to make for us today, that we want to we be building up in the faith, praying in the spirit, waiting for the day of the Lord so that we're able to reach over and snatch others out of fire. Not, we don't want to get caught up with arguments and follow ourselves living in a burning house. That's a bad idea. All right, we're going to get ready to close. I'm going to say one more thing. Quickly. I want you guys to to pay attention to language in this season and to recognize that the hyper-focus on empathy can be an invitation to compromise conviction. Um, Empathy is not always biblical. We've talked about this before. Sympathy is always biblical. Sympathy is the idea of loving people who are going through things, trying to hear and understand. Empathy is blindly agreeing with people on the basis of their personal experiences. We don't want to blindly agree. Do you guys understand the difference there? But the the cultural push is Christians are empathetic. Christians must be empathetic. Um, That's not necessarily a biblical concept. Um, I I want to be sympathetic. But that doesn't mean that because you're struggling with a particular sin that I need to now get in your shoes and see things the way that you see things and agree with your ideas. That would be compromising the truth. So we need to be aware of that. We do want to... Words have definitions. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but I'm going to teach you something. Words actually have definitions, but they're not always used to mean what they actually mean. So sometimes when we say empathy, we really mean sympathy. Like a lot of people don't actually know that distinction. So sometimes people are screaming, be empathetic. And what they really mean is like, you should be kind. And that's cool. We're cool with that. That's, that's biblical. We should be kind. But, but, but what, what's under it, what the word actually means, and what others mean is be empathetic means listen to our stories, agree with us, and never tell us we're wrong. Try to be a parent that way, and you're going down quick, boy. You better be ready to tell your kids they're wrong. Right? And again, parenting is the greatest expression of love. It's like, I love you a lot. You're not allowed to lie. Okay? (laughs) That's just the way it is. We want to learn those lessons. We want to be people who snatch others from the fire and and to embrace this, this teaching that Jude's trying to teach us. All right, let's pray over the word. I want us to pray. If you guys would really pray with me for a minute, I want to pray that the Lord, as we study Jude, would really um, push some of these ideas into our hearts. And then we'll step into a time of ministry. So, Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we are asking that you would teach us to be a people who snatch those who are fallen into error out of fire while hating the garment stained with flesh. Father, in Jesus' name, we're asking you to make us a people who are actively building ourselves up in our most holy faith. Come on this morning, if you need to just, in your own words, just repent. Lord, we repent for seasons where we've let our Bibles get dusty. 
or we repent for seasons where we've been too caught up in the busyness of life. We haven't taken the time to continually build ourselves up in the faith. Lord, forgive us for going through the motions of prayer and not praying in the spirit. Come on, make us a people who pray in the spirit, Lord. And Lord, we're asking for the kingdom to come in this region, for many souls to be snatched from fire as they fall in love with Jesus. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen.